having this objective tool, a scorecard, where there really should be a defensibility to how you actually score someone based on how they have answered a question or the examples that they've provided, that sort of thing. There should be a measure of consistency there such that at the end of it, once every stakeholder has spoken with every candidate, you should be able to reference the scorecard and see quite clearly who the right person for the role is. Welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes, where we lift the curtain on the hiring process and talk to recruiters and hiring managers to hear about how they do their work. This week, we are with Aaron Riska, who's got almost 20 years of recruiting experience and mainly focused on working with small businesses, whether that be tech startups or companies that have been around for a while, yet smaller. So a lot of the discussion is around setting up best practices from the get-go, companies where founders and hiring managers were doing the recruiting, and they actually stood up internal recruiting, implemented an ATS. So we spend a bit of time talking about how you might job search when looking for small companies, the opportunities that are out there when looking at small companies, and how smaller companies go about finding talent when competing against big companies with big budgets and lots of recruiters and the ability to spend and post on job boards. It's a really great conversation. Aaron is incredibly insightful and also just an awesome job search advocate. I hope you learn as much from this episode as I did recording it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This week, we are with Aaron Riska, who I'm going to talk to about recruiting, But I may sneak in a question about digital nomading as well, because the way she's building her career and her practice around recruiting is incredibly interesting. And she's quite active on LinkedIn and talks a lot about it. But it's better you introduce yourself than I do it. Thanks, Dave. Yes, I'm Erin Miska. I am a a lifelong people operations professional. Once upon a time, I was uh, HR department of one in small businesses and over time, found myself called to niche down into the kind of work I loved the best and uh, felt most gratified by, and that was talent acquisition. And so spent a number of of years of my career as a recruiter in-house for small businesses, growing businesses, nearly always privately held, and really loved that work. Come 2020 and that big fat global pandemic, my career was cratered a bit by a layoff and it uh, gave me the space and the time that I needed in order to do something I dreamed of for a long time, which was going into business for myself. And so for the last three and a half years, I have uh, operated under my own auspices with my company Search and Rescue. Uh, I am a fractional talent acquisition partner and freelance recruiter. I work exclusively with small and scaling businesses as a foundational or supplemental partner to help companies that otherwise might struggle to hire because they don't necessarily have all of the uh, big brand name recognition and cachet of big legacy companies. So they get uh, really, really great talent acquisition on a fractional basis. You just made me think of a question that we hadn't talked about, but given that you work with smaller companies, we've had a lot of guests on the show that talk about bigger companies the Googles and Facebooks of the world, you know, tens of thousands of employees and all sorts of, you know, very involved committees and systems. But you work with smaller companies, which actually like the vast majority of companies are small companies. They may not make up the bulk of the employee base that's employed, but they actually make up the majority of entities and they're starting all the time. So given that you are often maybe one of the first recruiters they work with, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on 
kind of like, what have you seen as a kind of like the pain prior to you getting there? It's like the founders and hiring managers recruiting on their own. I mean, that's what I'm doing right now. And then when they say, wait a second, now we need a recruiting hire. And like, what does that sort of transformation look like as, as a company sort of matures past this sort of guerrilla style recruiting to actually professionalizing this? Yeah, so this is interesting stuff because um, you find a really similar dynamic in small, well-established, privately held companies as you might find in startups that are scaling, right? Where both of them at some point may bring in talent acquisition support, right? A dedicated professional, whether they're full-time or they're supplemental, doesn't matter. But the first time they have a real professional leading that function, there is a bit of messiness to it, right? Like you call it guerrilla style. I've always called it, you know, like when I have been part of a startup, like it just feels like everybody is cowboying everything. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a certain period of time in the life cycle of a business where you can do that. And in fact, where you should do that, frankly, especially in the startup world. But at some point, you have to sort of begin to grow up, put on your big kid pants, right? Like you got to bring some form and function to how things get done, all things, including how hiring gets done. If you want it to be effective, if you want to have any hope of really consistently attracting and landing the best people to do the work in your business, right? Because during those early stages when there's uh, all this, you know, kind of cowboy messiness, there's an excitement to that, that feeling that anything can happen and anything that does happen will probably be okay. But over time, as an organization grows, the fallout from anything happening gets bigger and messier. So this has been a really consistent theme in my career as a recruiter is being the one who, I hate to say it because I'm really not wired this way. I sometimes feel almost forced to play the role of like the school mom, right? (laughs) Who's like trying to help people understand, listen, there is a better way to do this. I do think that I'm really well suited to playing the sort of halfway there role though, because I'm not actually sort of a process-oriented operator the way that like a real recruiting operations professional would be, but I have a fairly low threshold for just, am I allowed to swear here? Like I have a really low threshold. Yeah, sure. We we keep it mostly family friendly, but you know, these are hot topics. So occasionally we'll get, we'll get a flare up here and there. (laughs) Wonderful. Here's my flare. I have a fairly low threshold for fuckery, right? I like it when people know what they're doing. And so you gotta, you have to help people figure out and then know what they're doing um, so that they can continue doing it in a really good way. So given the the scale that you sort of enjoy to operate in, I'm gonna, is it safe to assume that you've implemented lots of ATSs? Yes, and other similar softwares. But yes, I have uh, navigated the implementation of ATS several times, yeah. So applicant tracking system for the non-jargony folks. I'd be curious to hear, like, what do what do the typical processes look like prior to you getting there? And I can talk about what we did before we implemented Greenhouse. And then kind of like the 101, not even like 201 level stuff, like what's the 101 of a hiring process look like to just get someone going? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah, the 101, well, good grief. Even before that, you know, for a long, long time in, again, small companies or startups that are scaling, there is a reliance, even an over-reliance on simply hiring somebody who knows somebody, right? So 
a lot of that, you know, when people talk about, you know, leveraging your network and referrals, that sort of thing, you do find so much of that approach to hiring because there's just not capacity or confidence in process. So leaders who are making those decisions where they derive any confidence is in the word of somebody that they already know and trust, right? So there is a real over-reliance on that. And just to give you a data point, I mean, the, the three leaders that report to me at Teal, we're four years old now, we're approaching 20 people. I worked with all of them at WeWork. Yeah, of course. It is the way of the beginning so often. And I don't think that that is necessarily problematic. Where it can become problematic is I've seen this more in like family businesses where the business sort of becomes an employment agency for the family, right? Oh, it can happen at big venture-backed startups as well. Uh, I wouldn't know anything about that. I'm sure, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so that is often what I initially step into where there's really no approach to recruiting from outside of the circles of the people who already work there. Or the next level up from that, it might be that there is, you know, maybe somebody who uh, wears the hat that has ownership of administration along with a few other things, and they'll post a job directly on Indeed, right? Rather than, you know, posting via an ATS, having Indeed aggregate it and and pull it in, you can post right on Indeed. And it usually goes like, email us at, right? It's like old school, or it's like, maybe they set up a Google form but it's not going to an ATS. It's like most likely going into someone's inbox. It absolutely is. And I will tell you, I actually really, I think that this is an area where job seekers could really do themselves a service is seek out those kinds of opportunities. And if they really speak to the kind of work that you want to do, apply for them because you will have a much more direct line to somebody that you know is going to receive and read your resume. You can message them a little bit more directly. I really think that job seekers sometimes overlook what are really amazing opportunities with small businesses um, that will meet most, if not all of the needs that they might be looking for in some big name brand company that they've dreamed of working for for their whole career. And so again, I don't think that this approach to Um, hiring outside, right? Like posting directly to Indeed. I don't think that that is problematic either. And in fact, Indeed has come a long way. It really offers quite a lot of tools that help companies that post directly to organize applicants, contact applicants. I mean, if you wanted, you could, as a small company, you could use Indeed like an ATS. I don't think it's really preferable for a long time, but you can. So, and then from there, there tends to be an, uh, an effort to bring a little more form and function to things, maybe the adoption of an ATS. The big mistake that I've seen some companies make is they go too big and too far when they're trying to implement an ATS, right? You might have a company of 100 to 150 people. They're not on some hyper growth path where they're trying to scale to thousands and they'll try to adopt some kind of a tool that's really best suited to an enterprise level company, Right. But there are some excellent tools out there that work really, really well in a very right-sized way for small businesses who have much smaller budgets. They don't have such complex needs around the number of roles that they would want to post, the kind of reporting that they would want to do. Um, They don't necessarily have multiple recruiters working inside that system. So there's this middle ground there, some really great tools that I love using that I think a lot of companies would 
be well served to look at rather than saying, oh, yeah, 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 let's go get greenhouse. Let's get Workday, right? I mean, do you have some examples? Can, can you list them out? Yeah, sure. There are two in particular I really, really love. First is a company called Talent Lift. It is a terrific small to mid-size company, ATS. It is a organization out of Croatia, which is a place very close to my heart. I was introduced to this system when I was recruiting for a Croatian company that used them as well. And then the second is a tool called Team Tailor, which I really love because it does a beautiful job of really integrating recruitment marketing and talent acquisition, right, in one platform. Both are fantastic. I am using a third tool that is new to me with a newish client called WiseHire, which is not actually an ATS. You can use it like one a little bit. For my purposes, I think that they're actually better suited to small employers that don't have a dedicated talent acquisition professional yet because they're integrating a lot of AI and they build disk assessments right into the application process. So there are things about the platform that don't necessarily align with how I like to work as a TA professional, but I'm making it work for this company. So again, all of these are much smaller outfits where the tools, I think, really work well for smaller companies. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I think that there is a bit of a misperception that if I join a little company, it's unstable, right? I want to go to a big company because it's state, you know, stable. I feel like we're, we are transitioning to a global economy that is inherently unstable and it just operates at a much faster pace. There's an agility and companies, I, you know, I think the last 24 months have 36 months have shown us that companies will move quickly. They'll make the decisions. And I think the, what used to be longer term ramifications of like layoffs and things like that are mostly gone. I just feel like as a, like, population or species, we've gotten a shorter and shorter memory. And it's like, yeah, okay, they, you know, that's just how business gets done now. And it goes both ways. I'll job hop and I'll switch jobs. I don't even like calling it job hopping because that's got a stigma. I'll switch in 12 months. I'll switch in 18 months. And, And I think it's become sort of mutually accepted. Like, it's cool. We get it. This is, you know, we're hiring people to do the jobs we need to do. If we unfortunately don't need them, we'll cut them. And if they find better opportunities, they're gonna leave. And I don't know, there's something about it that I kind of like. It feels very unemotional, but that's kind of sad. But I'm also like, people got to get paid. You know, the funny thing is, I would agree with you in part, right? Half of that. Certainly, we're seeing that employers, they will act pretty quickly. They will engage in a really sizable reduction in force if and when they need to, often at the behest of their investors or shareholders, right? But I still see quite a lot of bias against applicants and candidates who have done something similar, right? And that's really unfortunate. I I would love to see more and more hiring teams acknowledge the fact that, especially in the course of the last 36 months, people have, often out of necessity, maybe, maybe out of opportunism, they have changed jobs every 12 to 18 months. And that's not to say that they're a risk. It's not to say that they're uncommitted. I think you can go into an organization and have a really significant impact in 12 to 18 months, right? So while I think job seekers are forced to contend with the fact that companies are engaging in that kind of behavior, a lot of hiring teams continue to have some sacred cows around that. And they really love to see a nice, tidy little employment history where you spent, you know, 36 to a hundred months with a, with a company, right? Cause it feels less risky. One of the things I've seen is there's, you know, this could go counter to the small company thing, but 
like recruiters and TA professionals tend to understand that a little better than I'll just group them all together, hiring managers. They tend to like, you know, a lot of the sort of stereotypes and things that we pick on anyone that sort of posts on social, those do have some truth in that hiring managers, hiring managers like cover letters. I've just kind of generally seen that they like them. They feel, oh, it's like very personal. They love the when above and beyond. And then that's kind of like the tension you see between like hiring managers and recruiters. They're like, you know, don't get in my inbox and ask me. And the hiring managers, I love it when they write me. It shows initiative. And the recruiter's like, I have 500 people in my inbox. They do. Yep. They love thank you notes as well. You know, I think the onus is on recruiters to help hiring managers understand that those are not the factors upon which hiring decisions should be made, right? It really does need to come down to knowledge, skills, and abilities. But in an environment like this, where there is a lot of exceptional talent on the market, and hiring managers are not typically looking at one person with great knowledge, skills, and ability, and then five people who are pretty good, they often have five or six people who really offer exactly what they need for the role. Any one of them could be really great. And so they do sort of default to some of these more subjective elements in making that final decision. And you are absolutely right. Hiring managers in companies of all sizes continue to really appreciate cover letters and thank you notes. And I regularly hear from hiring managers that it's off-putting to not receive a cover letter or a thank you note. And I have to help them understand, like, listen, that doesn't have anything to do with their ability to do the job, but it's a real thing. And for the job seekers out there, this is really tough because what I see a lot is proponents for how they think the world should be, right? So like the thank you letter is a perfect one, right? There's folks that I can't believe people still ask for them and you shouldn't do it. And it's like, well, what you're trying to do is encourage people to act in a way that'll move us closer to the world that you'd like to see us living in. And that's cool. Like people need to take action and someone's got to start the movement. Be the change you wish to see in the world, right? (laughs) But it's also not fair because there are more than an insignificant amount of people that actually value those things. And we're also living in a world that are people that are like not following the advice. and, And so they do kind of stand out in air quotes, this is audio only. And it's a bummer because I believe, you know, I love Dan's space. He, he, him and I sort of go back and forth on this one all the time. And, you know, he's gotten to the point where he's like, Rob Kinsella has done a really good job of explaining like, look, it's better to do it and not need it than need it and not have done it. That's right. But that then starts to pile up to just like, you only have so many hours in the day to do it and stuff like that. But it is kind of like a hedge, the downside is so little. And I get by doing it, we're perpetuating this like awful thing, but someone else will, and then you won't stand out. And it's a bummer. That's exactly right. I just posted about this recently and it really became quite contentious um, because the point I was making is that I am seeing a lot of can't, won't, and don't out of job seekers, which there are markets where, you know, drawing really clear boundaries about what kind of activities you will partake of in the hiring process where, for lack of a better way to put it, you can get away with that, right? In a market like this, I mean, the idea that you would actively choose not to do something that might help and absolutely can't hurt is unfathomable to me because somebody else will. Somebody will do all of those things. It's an unfortunate thing I see with job seekers is like their bar is, let's call it like level 10. And like as the job search gets longer, 
their bar goes down to like two. And it's like, look, if you would just would have started at two or at five, like you might've gotten some of these opportunities because you put some parameters around it. And I get it. It's like super personal to get rejected. And there's a lot of like emotional defense mechanisms that we put in place for some of those things. And I think, look, there's like, hey, we're, unfortunately, we might've gotten laid off. We got three months of unemployment. We're like, we're confident, we're good. And it's like, oh, now, and it's like, well, like figure out what your like non-starters are like from the get-go and just like operate from that place. So you're not running this sort of complex changing process. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think that's one of the fundamental mistakes that job seekers make. And it's understandable why they do it, right? They rush out of the gate. It's very fast and furious applying for like every role that kind of sort of feels like something they could do. I think you have far better chance of landing successfully and more specifically landing in a role that really is right. That's the right next step. If you take a measured and intentional approach to your job search rather than that fast and furious one, but the fast and the furious feels like they're doing all the right things, right? They think like I'm casting a wide net. You feel like you're moving. It's like driving the longer route just to keep driving rather than being stuck in traffic. And it's half the time technically. That's exactly right. Like they're doing as much as they possibly can, right? But that doesn't mean they're doing the best that they possibly can. So let's use that to segue into how companies evaluate. Because there can be like, hey, yeah, that person was great. They sent me a thank you letter. Let's make them an offer to very rigorous scorecarding and matrix matrices and, you know, even like committees. And so what have you seen? You know, the whole point of this show is hiring behind the scenes. So what are the kind of like levels of evaluation from like the most simple with some rigor to, you know, a little more robust at companies of the size you work with? Yeah. So, you know, similar to how, you know, some very small companies, small startups, their approach to hiring early on is someone who somebody else knows, right? Often the interview truly is just a conversation, nothing more, right? There's very, very little in the way of uh, ascertaining how effective somebody was in the work that they've done. I mean, I have absolutely seen hiring decision makers decide to bring somebody on simply because they had a great talk, right? Had a great conversation. I just had a great feeling, you know, really strikes me as a go-getter. I'm going to get things done, right? And I mean, these are, in my opinion, the most dangerous hires to make because there are people who are really, really good at getting jobs, but really, really bad at doing them, right? There is a actual skill set unto itself that makes certain people good at talking their way into almost anything, including jobs. So I think that that is an especially dangerous way for any hiring manager to make a decision about who to bring on. I've seen it turn out disastrously regularly. One level up from there is, you know, you will find hiring managers. They're not noobs, right? I mean, most people who are in a position that they're hiring at all, it's because they've got some experience under their belt, right? They've been in the world of work. They've worked with other people. They've probably worked with good and bad people. They have an idea of what they're looking for, that sort of thing. Most of the time, even folks who don't hire a lot, they do want to do a good job. They want to ask real questions that are going to offer insights into the efficacy with which somebody can do a job, the extent to which someone's 
values align with the cultural norms and the values in the organization, that sort of thing. And so, but they'll still take a pretty conversational approach where it's a little bit like follow the leader, right? Frankly, I will tell you that as a recruiter, I actually employ this approach somewhat intentionally in the introductory calls I do with candidates. I am not a formulaic ultra-structured recruiter where these are the questions and I only ask these questions and I ask these questions every time. I have certain themes that I need my conversations to incorporate. I have a couple of different ways that I explore those themes with candidates. Depending on their style and their receptivity, I cover the same ground with everyone, but I do it in slightly different ways. So I actually think that this is the way that a lot of hiring in smaller businesses and in you know startups and scale-ups happens. So there's an element of that, you know, getting a feel for someone, but there's more to it than just, you know, well, we play golf at the same club, you know? So a lot of these feel like once a person gets into interviewing, which is like there's structure there. Have you seen any structures or frameworks or scorecarding around resumes? Not at the applicant stage. Certainly I've seen, I mean, I've frequently been a part of um, hiring processes where a scorecard is employed. And I've seen those really run the gamut in terms of complexity. You know, for anybody out there who's maybe unfamiliar with this terminology scorecard, this is, I think, a really great example of where talent acquisition professionals can and should further pull the curtain back on what happens behind the scenes in hiring. I think candidates often don't even know what a scorecard is or know that it's being used. But essentially what this is, is is probably what comes to mind for you when you hear a scorecard, a little bit like a report card, where the hiring team, each person that you speak with in a hiring process is evaluating you upon the same criteria. And the kinds of questions that they ask each uh, stakeholder in that process, those might differ. But the criteria itself that they're evaluating for is consistent. And they're literally scoring you, right? Because there's sort of two different things that are happening in hiring a lot of the time. You are evaluating candidates against the requirements of the role. And that's really how hiring should happen. But when you're evaluating a lot of candidates, you necessarily also wind up evaluating those candidates against and across one another. Right. Relative to each other. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so having this objective tool, a scorecard, where there really should be a defensibility to how you actually score someone based on how they have answered a question or the examples that they've provided, that sort of thing. There should be a measure of consistency there such that at the end of it, once every stakeholder has spoken with every candidate, you should be able to reference the scorecard and see quite clearly who the right person for the role is on the basis of the score. It doesn't always work that way because, again, people are human. There are biases. There are preferences. There are sacred cows. There's a lot of margin of error when organizations use scorecards without rigorous training (laughs) about how to do it effectively. Can you give some examples of the dimensions on a scorecard? And and they might even change if it's like a work culture interview versus a technical interview versus a screener. But yeah, what are some of the kind of items that you would typically expect to see on a scorecard? Ideally, the scorecard should be exclusively, certainly primarily, if not exclusively, built upon the actual work-related tasks and behaviors, the deliverables of the job. Sometimes they're not, right? Because it's really difficult to evaluate for something like cultural alignment and values 
in an objective fashion. Um, there are certainly ways to design questions for a structured interview process that will provide insights there. But culture and values are notoriously difficult to evaluate objectively. But with regards to the work of the work, right, what someone is being hired to accomplish in a role, there should be dimensions. They're very clear, they're very concise, and they're very difficult to argue against, right? So, and you see this a lot in the way that promotions happen, especially in larger organizations where you have multiple levels of a singular title and you have like a competency matrix that informs where someone should be with regards to their skills in order to achieve L4 or S7 or whatever we're calling it in any any organization, right? So similarly, that same sort of competency matrix approach is what the best kind of scorecards employ. Obviously, this is much easier to do with roles that are really technical, right? You can employ a scorecard fairly easily if you're evaluating something like a solutions architect or a software developer, right? It gets a little more difficult if you are evaluating candidates for a role like social worker, right? I do a lot of recruiting in mental health. And so there's necessarily a certain amount of subjectivity that comes in that particular industry. So I don't think that there's any singular approach that's right for all companies or all roles. No one size fits all, but there are best practices. And really the very best of best practices is to focus on the actual work that needs to be done. So to make it a little more concrete, can you give some examples of items that have been on scorecards that you've done in the past? So whether it was a social worker or a software engineer, just like to even hear like the language that's like written on the scorecard to give a, a better, like, so I can see it in my head, what one looks like. Yeah. Oh gosh. Okay. So there are some ATSs that actually let you build scorecards right in the system, right? The one that I mentioned a little while ago, a talent lift allows you to do that. Most of my experience using scorecards has been in those that are built in something like Google Sheets or, or Excel, right? So quite literally in your mind, imagine a matrix, right? And so some of the dimensions, I'm going to use um, mental health professionals simply because that's where I do a lot of recruiting these days. So some of the the dimensions that we would be evaluating upon the type of licensure that they have, right? Right. So that's like binary, like they have it, don't have it. There's a binary component, but there's a more complex uh, look as well, because then it matters. Is it an LCSW versus an LPC versus an LMFT, right? And there are certain types of practice that would benefit more from having, say, a licensed marriage and family therapist rather than a licensed clinical social worker, right? Technically, both can maybe diagnose the same behavioral health disorders, but the way that they would formulate treatment plans, and then deliver services to someone would differ on the basis of their licensure. So there is a binary element. Are they licensed? Are they not? But then there's also, okay, they're licensed, but is it provisional or full, right? So those kinds of very objective elements, those matter quite a lot. Length of time that they've been in practice. And then, you know, this kind of comes into years of experience where, you know, you see a lot of derision on LinkedIn, especially aimed at the idea of, you know, like, well, why do they require X number of years of experience, right? Like this is not an indicator of whether somebody can do a job. And that's not accurate, right? Like the other industry I've done a lot of recruiting in is commercial construction, right? Couldn't be any more different than mental health. But the fact of the matter is years of experience matter in both of these because of what it provides with regards to reps. The depth of experience that somebody has with diverse potential outcomes. You can only get that through 
years of experience. So that is going to be another dimension, right? This is where you might see a bit of an evaluation of a resume in the scorecard, but it's not necessarily at the applicant stage. You're, you're doing it when you're actually speaking with them as a candidate. With regards to things that are like more specific to the role could be around like the modalities that they use as therapists, right? So do they specialize in cognitive behavioral therapy versus dialectical behavioral therapy versus EMDR, right? And then you'll be evaluating their efficacy based on their experience and the number of clients that they have employed these different modalities with in the course of their career, right? Because some of these don't necessarily have a certification. It's more of a methodology than a certification. So you kind of need to discern their comfort and depth with a methodology that just like, well, I mean, look, even a certificate or a degree to a certain extent doesn't really say, like, I could go get a certificate on data science because I did the homework. But then if you sort of put me behind a computer and said, hey, start writing in Python, I'd be like, I can't do it on my own. I need the tutorial. Yes, absolutely. And even licensure at times. There are professions where even licensure isn't necessarily a a clear-cut indicator that they genuinely know what they're going to they're doing and are going to do it well but we try so those are all some of the dimensions on which you would be evaluating someone like a mental health therapist for a role because ultimately that's what's going to help you determine if they're going to fulfill the specific need that you're trying to fill in the business where there is a gap and you know again i think when you get into highly technical roles it does become increasingly objective because there are ways to evaluate just how effective somebody is at writing in Python versus JavaScript or, you know, some other language. So I try not to touch technical roles. <laughs> Actually, I just recorded with Farah Shargi, who was a, an engineer. So we go pretty deep on some of that stuff. Going back to the theme of smaller companies. So a lot of what we just talked about, I feel like, was around interviewing and like a, developing a more objective mechanism for consistency in interviewing. I mean, another topic I really like is structured interviews, but maybe that's for another day. Maybe we'll get back to it. But do you see kind of like uh, any kind of correlation between the number of interviews and the size of company? Ooh, no, unfortunately. <laughs> Is it more, it's more about the person, right? Like the, or like the leadership, like somebody that's like, I need seven people. And where, where I worked last, I worked at WeWork. I hate when people are like coy like that. There was, you know, yeah, it's like, oh, have this person meet with them. Have this person meet with them. And it was like more like the more people that meet with them, the more confident I am in the decision. But it's like, actually, what you've done is create this awful situation of groupthink. And it's not even clear at all. And you're hedging so that like you can say, oh, that person said to hire them or that person said that didn't. But it was very much about the person. I don't think it had anything to do with their size. Yeah. I mean, oh, good grief. What I have seen happen to interview processes in the you know 20 plus years that I've been in the world of work. It is so demoralizing, you know, and I'm going to be upfront and say here that two of when I was internal, right, the two jobs in my own career that I consider the best jobs I've ever had, jobs where I did the work that I felt was most impactful, that was most gratifying. Both of them were jobs that I had one interview for and I was offered the job that day. The job that I consider the one that was the poorest fit for me that ultimately left me really in a crisis of confidence around how effectively I could do any job was a job that I had five interviews for where I spoke with no fewer than 10 people. And it was a process that took two months, right? So the idea that more is better has just really not borne out in my own experience. I've also seen it be wildly ineffective in companies that I recruit for. And that's not to say that I think companies should hire 
in a way where they have one conversation and offer people jobs on the spot, right? Like that's probably not ideal. I lucked out twice. (laughs) The other extreme, no. And in fact, I would say that the extent to which a hiring stakeholder feels called to, oh, let's just have them speak with one more person, the extent to which that is their feeling, the more likely it is that it's just not the right person, right? If you've got someone who's right for the role, this is where there is space for a bit of like that gut instinct, right? I don't think you should hire everybody that your gut gives you a good feeling about. But if your gut gives you a bad enough feeling that you're like, I need more opinions, more opinions, more opinions to substantiate it, like it's just not the right candidate. You need to keep looking. I feel like someone's put content out there where it's like got to be like unanimous fuck yes since you know you dropped an F bomb all or very I'll do one with you. Yep, yep. <laughs> and I think it's true. You know, like when I would go through stuff in our ATS, we would use Airtable at first. I had this like I'll come back to, and I was like, wait a second, if they weren't like an automatic yes, why do I have doubt? You know, which I think what we can do here is sort of flip this to the candidate. Right. And it's not personal. Remember, you're being evaluated on the resume. And so it's like part of the job of the candidate in the job search process is to convince this person that like you are accretive to their career. Like I need to feel that having you on my team increases my chances of winning. And I like to try to decouple these things from the job. Right. It's like if you're going to go buy something and not to unpersonalize it, but like the salesperson's awful. And I'm like, oh, you could have this car, but it's like not that great. Or it's like, I don't want to work with you. I don't want you to get a commission. I don't want to work with you. I want to work with someone who like went the extra mile. But somehow when we apply that to the lens of how we apply to jobs, it's like, well, why aren't they giving me the benefit of the doubt? I said I knew this software. The other ones like it. It's like, no, they can't do that. It's too risky. Like you really need to get them to this like F yeah mindset. And if you're just like giving them all these reasons to be like, "Mm," the risk rewards just generally not there on hiring. That's absolutely right. And this, I think, is one of the fundamental disconnects for job seekers is this idea like hire for attitude, right? Like you can train people to do anything, hire someone with the right attitude or, you know, just have a conversation and go with your gut. These are risky, right? And hiring itself is inherently risky. The impact of the wrong hire in a company is exponentially more significant than the impact of the right hire. I mean, that is the sad truth, right? Like, Or even not hiring. Yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, everybody wants to get the right hire and that that bears fruit in a company, but man, getting the wrong hire, that can crater so much in a company. So hiring is just inherently risky and hiring professionals are inherently risk averse. And so job seekers really have to be able to convey to hiring leaders and and the decision makers why they are the surest, the safest bet for success where this role is concerned. So, um, and this is one reason why, you know, people who are trying to pivot, people who are trying to change careers altogether, this is one reason they run up against such a wall because they're really overcoming both the fact that they haven't done the job yet, right? Even if they have a track record of success in other kinds of jobs, it just presents a risk. So that's the the worst news. I hate delivering this to job seekers right now in this market because there are a lot of people, especially in recruiting, because recruiting has been just obliterated over the last 15 months. There are so many people who got 
into recruiting in the height of, you know, the hiring frenzy when everybody was over hiring. And, and, you know, there was that period of time where there were more recruiter jobs than engineering jobs available, if you recall. So there are a lot of people who got into it then. They've been riffed once or twice at this point. They're ready to move on. And they're having a really hard time pivoting because the time to pivot, time to pursue an entirely different kind of career where maybe you're leveraging transferable skills, but really it's a different job. The time to do that is when the market is really, really tight and competitive. When there's already a whole bunch of people on the market. There's no supply, so you need to get creative. Exactly. But when the supply is high, companies are going to go with the sure thing. They're going to go with the candidate who's already done that job. Yeah, I think that that is, and I'm consistently trying to make the job search process more objective with a complete and total understanding that it is intrinsically connected to our identity and who we are and to say like rejections, redirection. It's like, great, that's a nice little platitude, but it still hurt like hell. All right. Hell yeah, it does. Especially if you really wanted the job. And so I get it. I don't want to come off as non-compassionate or non-empathetic, but at the end of the day, it's a market. It is a market. And I tell people, it's like, you are the product. That's the market. You, it's your job to prove the product market fit. Like the company is not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. It just does not behoove them. And I also tell like, think about in your life, when do you give things that are risky, like really risky, the benefit of the doubt, you know? And so I don't think people understand like the risk of a bad hire and just really the awful consequences to a company when they make bad hires. Also, you know, this goes back to smaller companies. It hurts even worse. Yeah, it absolutely does. Because you continue to feel the effects of the bad hire long after they're gone, right? Assuming that you you realize it's a bad hire and you exit them, go your separate ways. You feel the effects of that for a really long time. Bad hires tend to uh, sort of toxify everything they touch in a company, right? It impacts culture in ways that can be really, really difficult to overcome. And this is what I mean when I say the effect of one bad hire is exponentially more significant than the positive impact of a good hire, right? You just feel it so much more acutely and much longer. It's an important thing to stress because like that is, and the other thing is an advice like this gets heard. There's a sense of like obligation. And this is another thing I like to be super clear on. It's like, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do anything, right? Like, but this is a market. And what I can say quite confidently is someone else will. So you don't have to, but if you want to be competitive, someone else will. So it's not that you have to, but just understand that, especially in a market like now, these things are dynamic and they change. And it's also different by, you know, I'm sure an AI engineer right now has no problems. Their resume can just say like, you know, LLM and, you know, and like they get a job. But, you know, if you're a recruiter right now, yeah, it's tough. If you're a customer support rep, it's tough. You know, even if you're a social media manager, it's tough. Some of these jobs are getting chopped. So you need to stand out relative to the market. So I mean, this is where I think you can do competitive research. Hey, go look at the LinkedIn profiles of the other people. Like, see what they're doing. Look at the best ones and you gotta be better. You know, look at the resumes that get posted online. You gotta be better. You know, it's unfortunate, but it's also, I don't know, that also just kind of makes it clearer for me instead of this like nebulous thing. It's like, yeah, I just gotta stand out above the rest. Yep, absolutely. And ideally, you wanna do that by way of illustrating what, you have done, right? You want to do it on your resume. You want to have all your bona fides with regards to 
the education and experience that they're looking for. You want to have accomplishments that they can see the relevance to their own operations. That's where it, where you really want to do it. But sometimes everybody else is doing that same thing. And so you can and you should look for other ways to differentiate yourself by doing those those might help can't hurt parts of a job search, like including a cover letter, introducing yourself in an engaging fashion and explaining more about who you are and what you have to offer than you can convey via a few bullet points on a resume, right? This is where you want to send a thank you note, right? I mean, this takes mere minutes. And you can use it also as an opportunity to make a closing argument, to restate your interest in the role and leave a lasting impression. Most of these things, these might help, can't hurt, they're not that time intensive, right? Especially once you've done them a few times, you feel comfortable, you've got a template you've created, you can tailor it quickly to a specific company or role it's just such an oversight to say, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to rely on applying for the job and then asking everybody in my network if they can refer me, right? I mean, a referral certainly helps, but in this market, it simply takes more than that sometimes to get the job. I'm consistently impressed by just like our brain's ability to take many, 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 many inputs. And we're not even aware. And I do think like for certain roles, someone got roasted the other day because of the people that didn't the people that easy applied and didn't follow up or something, you know, and that was like obnoxious. But what I like about those posts is like someone said the quiet part out loud. Yep. Yep. I love that because it gives real insight into how people other than recruiters think and behave in a hiring process. Right. I mean, on the whole, recruiters found that post aberrant, but sales professionals were like, well, yeah, I mean, like the ability and the willingness to follow up is germane to succeeding in this role. Why would you not evaluate applicants on whether they did that, right? I mean, there's an element of that that obviously really makes great sense even to me as a recruiter, right? Sales professionals, I think, are though are like especially notorious for like really, really wacky hiring processes. I mean, I made a post of my own after that one joking about the fact that like the right way to hire sales professionals is to just ask each applicant what sport they played in college and choose the one that played your favorite. <laughs> and the reason I said that is because I have had many, 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 many hiring managers in my career index according to, well, they were a competitive athlete, right? So they like to win. And though that's what makes a good sales professional, right? Like that's the quiet part. And people do say it out loud. So it's tricky because it's like at one point, this is bad behavior and I wish the world didn't work this way. <laughs> yeah. But this person hired somebody, they behaved the way they wanted and they got the job. That's right. So it's kind of like the way it, it's like I tell people, it's like you're playing a game by the rules that you want them to be versus the rules that they are. Like I'm all for trying to change them. Yeah, we call that Kelvin ball. <laughs> it's Kelvin ball, right? Kelvin and Hobbes, right? Changing the rules according to what I want the outcome to be. It just, sadly, it doesn't work that way, you know? I mean, I love that the work that I do, especially because I'm a solo recruiter, I do get to design processes to my liking to a large extent. You will never find me working in the Amazons of the world, right? Like, I'm just not going to do it because I don't get to do things my own way. But in the job search, you just often don't get to do that. And, you know, one of the things you often see on LinkedIn is people 
imploring job seekers like, oh, you leverage this platform, create content here, and you'll have all these job offers coming to you and opportunities will abound. And there's an element of truth to that, right? There is, for some people, a really big payoff around all this personal branding online and that sort of thing. But like, fact of the matter, most people still get most jobs by simply applying for them and then demonstrating that they're the right person for the role who can do the work, they can do it well, and they can mitigate the risk that exists in the hiring process. That's it. Most companies are actually not out there searching for some thought leader on LinkedIn who likes to pontificate about all the things that are of interest to them to come do a job as, you know, customer success manager level one, right? They're just not. I love the way you frame that is because it was very much about intention and not tactics. And I think we get really mired in the tactics. Is it a one-page resume? Do I need to customize my resume for every job? Because people like the checklist. And it's like, the answer might be maybe. But I think more importantly, you should ask yourself, is what I'm submitting, whether my response verbally or the resume, tell the person on the other side to think, fuck yeah. Right. Like, look, if you can do that with one resume that you never edit ever power to you. Yeah. But it's like, am I de-risking it? Is this person saying like, wow, by hiring Aaron, I'm for sure going to get a raise. Like she's going to knock it out of the park so hard that I'm going to look like a superstar. She is going to ensure that I get my bonus. I have these crate, And like, that's what the person's thinking about. It's, it's actually very selfish to the person hiring. It's like, does this person, are they going to have a positive effect on my career or what I'd say is more the default, are they going to cost me my job? Yep. Or my standing in the company, right? Even if it doesn't cost their job, but it's going to cost their standing. Right. My identity. Yep. Absolutely right. That's really what it boils down to. You can do everything right according to a checklist, right? And people do like that because I think a lot of people are just averse to ambiguity, right? They want to know that these are the guardrails that I need to operate within and I've I've done my job, right? Like I, I did everything right and so I should get a job. But there's just more to it. And this is, I mean, frankly, where some of that that subjectivity, it does start to creep in. The best thing you can do is convey to those hiring decision makers the real value that you can add. You're going to help them make their bonus and you're not going to jeopardize their standing in the company, right? think that's it. And just ask, did I put my best foot forward? I remember there was this like, uh, I don't know, I think it was Henry Kissinger. His process was when someone would submit work to him, he would just say, is this your best work? <laughs> right. And then say no. And he would do it like three times, pretty much every time. And it's like, if you hold yourself to that high bar, like, is this the best version of you? Are you presenting your best self? And if you're consistently saying no, and look, I say this, I understand there's not infinite time. There's all these scenarios of got kids, kid gets sick. You got, you know, car breaks down, like life's hard, life's complicated. But, you know, especially what I would say to people is like, if you get an interview, like you got past, like you got there, you know, I do these interviews with people and they don't even prepare. Oh, you know, I'll use Teal as a very specific example. We make free software for job seekers. Like if you haven't at least like signed up and given it a whirl, I'm kind of just like, what other people have. And it's like, you're just like not curious. You're like, you're literally our persona. Like, and you're applying to work here to help be a part of this thing that helps people like that are in your shoes. It's just kind of like, not that it's not insurmountable. It's not an automatic no, but it's definitely for me a big ditch to dig out of. 
I think you're absolutely right. And I know that we're probably getting pretty close to wrapping up here. I do really want to emphasize that point earlier about don't sleep on small businesses, right? One of the things you hear so frequently that, you know, as a, a cautionary tale to job seekers is, oh, well, you know, you're competing against hundreds or maybe even thousands of applicants. Well, I've been recruiting for small businesses for many, many, many years. And I will tell you, I can count on one hand, one hand, the number of roles that I've recruited for where I've gotten more than 200 applicants. And in fact, almost always the roles I recruit for, we get somewhere between 10 and 100 applicants. You just are going to be competing with a far, far smaller pool of applicants when you are focusing on smaller businesses. I think so many job seekers can and should look to smaller, perhaps more local companies that have real needs. Stop trying to go go with Google, especially right now. They just keep laying everybody off, right? Like, Totally. It's a thing that I've realized is a huge misconception about job boards. People think that job boards are like Google, that every job under the sun is in the job board. And it's like, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. Those companies actually have to pay to be there. And I mean, not all of them. I know like Indeed puts in some that they aggregate and stuff like that. But the ones you're seeing were paid. Like you got to go to like page 10 of the search results to see the non-paid ones. And so there are a lot of jobs, a lot of jobs that are not on job boards. And it's a lot of work. You got to go find them, but it's especially these little companies. It's expensive. Tens of hundreds of, you know, thousands of dollars to post these jobs sometimes. So look for the jobs and you, I tell people use lots of job boards. And go directly to companies that you're interested in. Go to their website, go to their careers page. Go to their website. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously go there to apply, but even like once you've got a target list of companies you're really interested in, follow them everywhere that you can, including on their website. Go regularly, see what is coming online on their careers page because the aggregators, they don't necessarily catch everything. And when they do, to your point, yes, they get buried very, very, very quickly. Well, Aaron, this was awesome. Thank you. We covered, I learned a lot about scorecards and how to do those. I'm going to implement those myself. We use Greenhouse. I'll use, I'll learn about the scorecard feature now. That'll make my, my afternoon. How can folks follow you online? What's the best way to get all the great content and advice that you share? Oh, you know, I'm most easily findable on LinkedIn. That tends to be my platform of choice. Luckily, I have a name that I think nobody else in the whole wide world has, Aaron Riska. Just search for me. You will find me. Yeah. And then in so much as I am a part of a location-independent nomadic family, you can also follow my family's travels on Instagram. So we post at famontherun1. That's awesome. We will link to those in the show notes. This was awesome. Thank you so much. This was a, a new perspective on the show that we haven't had. So thanks so much, Aaron. I really enjoyed the conversation. You're really welcome. Me too. Thanks a lot, Dave. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. We are here to help job seekers. The point of this show is to give you the behind the scenes look at the hiring practices of companies and to debunk a lot of the myths and fear mongering that's out there. So if you like the show, please subscribe. Would love for you to write me on LinkedIn or comment on one of my posts if you'd like to be a guest. We're really looking for practitioners that are in the hiring role, whether it be a hiring manager or a recruiter. We wanna give people that inside view to what it looks like like to be hired and to understand the inside view of how companies operate. So please let me know. And if you're job searching, check out Teal, tealhq.com. We are here to help you land a job you love. All right, thanks. And we'll catch you on the next one.